Like, I think I will never love my job and job security so much that I will like sacrifice my integrity. I mean, it's just something deep seated in me. I mean, that could have been career limiting. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about SpotDraft. If you spend hours every week drafting and reviewing contracts, worrying about being blindsided by renewals, or if you just want to streamline your contracting process, let's talk about an end-to-end AI-powered system that'll save you time. SpotDraft is a contract lifecycle management system that helps in every stage of contracting, from creating and managing templates and workflows, to tracking approvals, e-signing, and reporting via an AI-powered repository, SpotDraft does it all. And because it should work where you work, it integrates with all the tools your team already uses. SpotDraft is the key that unlocks the potential of your legal team. Make your contracting easier today at SpotDraft.com. How do you keep ethics at the helm when navigating complex questions around corporate compliance, diversity, and inclusion. Throughout this podcast, we've talked a lot about growth. We've talked about navigating challenging conversations. We've talked about IPOs, M&A, and corporate restructurings. One of the things that I think we've been missing and what we're going to dive deep on today are some incredibly important conversations around working in the corporate world, navigating issues of diversity, inclusion, compliance, and ethics. I'm Tyler Finn. Head of Community and Growth at SpotDraft, and today I am super excited to have Juna Rowe with us. She's previously been the general counsel at Metromile, and before that, she spent 15 years at CSAA Insurance Group, which is a AAA insurer, in a variety of roles there, but culminating as their chief compliance officer. So if there is anyone to have on the show to talk about ethics and and compliance. It's Juna. She's a fun person. Today, we're going to be tackling some serious topics, though. Juna, welcome to The Abstract. Tyler, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here today. Before we start talking about DEI and ethics, uh, I know you've been able to take some time off work recently, and I've been able to spend a lot of that time reflecting. Tell me a little bit about how you spent the past year. Yeah. So just um, stepping back a bit, you know, as often, unfortunately, or fortunately happens in tech, um, (laughs) my last company, Metro Mile, was an insure tech and we offered pay per mile auto insurance. We were acquired last summer. And so that transaction closed back in 2022. And it had been a really intense nine months from the day we announced the merger agreement to the close of the transaction. And I'd not only been the general counsel, but I was also asked to lead our HR function. So um, I was really proud to help close that deal and to ensure a smooth transition. And, you know, I got to handle so many different kinds of matters, right? From regulatory to employment to antitrust, litigation, corporate government, I mean, the whole thing in such a <laughs> compressed period of time, right? It's like I, I lived uh, like what a GC would experience over like five years in a like 18 month time frame. So needless to say, I was definitely ready for a break. Um, <laughs> and I've never had this kind of a sabbatical in my professional career, right? It's been such a wonderful period of self-reflection, growth and renewal. So I'll first start off by saying, if you ever have the opportunity to take a break, 
I highly encourage you to do so. It will really give you perspective. And I just have a few highlights of this time off. Um, so I got to travel, obviously. You know, I hadn't seen my parents, gosh, I think it was a three-year period because of the pandemic. Oh, wow. They live abroad. And yeah, they live in Korea. And we just decided, forget it. It's not safe to travel. And so I got to just spend a month there living like a local and just doing yeah. everyday normal things. And where every day the biggest issue was, what the heck are we going to eat? We have so many great choices. <laughs> you know, like what's our adventure going to be today? And so that was really wonderful. Um, I also got to spend some quality time with my daughter before she took off for college. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and we transitioned into being empty nesters. And so that was really wonderful to be able to do that. Uh, but also just like taking spontaneous trips, like, you know, road trip to Santa Barbara or wine tasting in, in Napa or even just playing tourist in my backyard in San Francisco and like mm -hmm. going for oysters and driving down all the tourist spots. And like the key was also just doing it midday or doing it midweek. I mean, these are the <laughs> things you just never get to do. And so sure. that was really... Yeah, it was really fun to just have that newfound freedom that I've never had before. And then I also had my fair share of like cool experiences. Like, yes, I did fly out to New York and take my daughter to the Taylor Swift concert. That was amazing. And, you know, got to go to museums and go to K-pop concerts. I mean, it was just like just this really wonderful time. I also did a lot of speaking. So I got to go to different conferences. You know, it was the first time I spoke at a conference where I was on the keynote panel on the main stage in front of like over a thousand people, uh, which fantastic. I only found, but I only found out like the night before it was like, <laughs> oh, 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 we're in the ballroom. Okay. Um, and it just went great. Like it was just wonderful energy um, and got to do that at, at several different conferences and just meet up with such cool people. You know, like I'm sure you and many of your audience members, like whenever you go to a conference, you're always like rushing back to your hotel room and like mm -hmm. trying to get your work done or you're checking your phone and like you got to talk to your <laughs> boss and you got to like leave the session that you're really interested in. But like this was just uninterrupted, right? Like truly taking it all in, just meeting cool people from all over the place. I got to go to this conference called the International Association of Korean Lawyers and I got huh. to meet lawyers of Korean heritage from different countries, like lawyers from Belgium and Germany and Brazil. I mean, it's like really cool to do things like that. And I also got to go to this. Um, so NAPABA is a National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. They have this mm -hmm. pipeliner program. And so they've invited people who are, you know, like they want to basically grow the pipeline of ready now Asian lawyers who can take general counsel roles at mm -hmm. you know Fortune 500 companies. It's this 50 by 25 initiative. So things like that, I just really enjoyed having this time off to really get to do the things I don't normally have the freedom to do. And also, I guess I just learned a lot about myself. You know, we're, we're so conditioned to tie our self-worth and our value based on the job title we have. And like, we're always like gunning for that next promotion or the next accolade. And you know, what do you do when you're you find yourself without a job or a title. Um, and so that was something I really faced. I felt like I was stripped bare of all of the titles and the job, et cetera, and really had to think about who am I? What worth do I bring? Like, what am I made of? Um, and what do I want this next chapter to look like? And um, what work do I really enjoy? And where can I have an impact? You know, and how can I be a better person and, and um, a better parent and child and friend and mentor. I mean, all these things um, really came to the fore this past year. And mm -hmm. so just really trying to be more present and appreciating the things that I have in my life and around me. So practicing gratitude has been a big deal um, this past year as well. And then of course, 
the job search. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I know you've written about this too, and you've been so great about like, you know, connecting our community and like having everybody feel supported. But there are a lot of people looking for jobs right now. And mm -hmm. there's just been so many highs and lows. I don't know what you're seeing, but definitely like in the Bay Area, it is a challenging market. Mm -hmm. um, especially for general counsel level roles, it's been somewhat yes. volatile. Like I've seen things like a CEO quitting, the Silicon Valley bank collapse. I mean, just mm -hmm. like so many different things have really um, impacted the search process in really interesting ways. I've just seen so many different kinds of leadership teams, different kinds mm -hmm. of CEOs and cultures and different operating priorities based on what industry you're in. So that's been really valuable. But I think I also learned like how interconnected we all are, right? And the power and strength of your network, not only for, for leads and getting introduced to people and to opportunities, but also just for support sure. um, and validation and just for the sense of community. Again, that's why I think your role is just so so important, right? It's like community building is so important. And so that's really helped me to learn to hone in on what, what I think is interesting work and really learn about organizations that are mission-driven and that align with my values. And so it's been really a wonderful time. And also just finding ways for me to contribute. I've been doing some volunteering, joined a nonprofit board. And so, yeah, that sort of rounds out my time. That sounds like a really great variety of ways to spend a year. And yeah. like it was really great learning experience for you. I, I am curious. You have all that time. Uh, well, it sounds like you were pretty busy, but <laughs> you have all that time. And do you read any good books while you were uh, working a little less? Yeah. Well, I mean, I still have a stack that I want to dive into, right? <laughs> I mean, we always do. And oh, like as much all. as I think I had time. Yeah. Like all the things I went through, that took a lot of time too. But I do want to share, like there was one of the more impactful books that I've read is um, called Grit, The Power of Passion and oh, Perseverance. Yeah. yeah. And it's by Angela Duckworth. She's this educator and psychologist. And she's studied um, grit paragons, which are basically people who have persevered and like really attained peak performance and like excel at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. And her basic thesis is that folks are who, who are successful are not necessarily the smartest or born <laughs> geniuses, thank God. <laughs> um, but they're the grittiest, meaning that like they stick with things over the long term until they master them. And it's mm -hmm. a really strong case uh, for having a growth mindset, right? And and not basing things on like, oh, you're the, the smartest person in the room or you're the luckiest person in the room, but there's this power of like sticking to something. And then she also talks about passion, that it's not necessarily something you just develop overnight, uh, which sure. I think a lot of us do. You think, oh, I have a passion for X or Y. And she, she was saying it actually takes hard work to cultivate your passions. And I just thought, oh, that's a different way to think about it. I also love that she's an Asian woman doing some really impactful work. And by mm -hmm. the way, she was also a teacher at my alma mater, Lowell High School um, ah. in San Francisco. So that was a cool factoid. And then another book I wanted to mention, it's always been so personally impactful to me, is a book called um, Pachinko. It's by Min Jin Lee. She's a Korean American writer. And it's a historical fiction novel that follows a Korean family over several generations in Korea and Japan. It starts during the Japanese occupation of Korea. And it's a story mm -hmm. about Koreans who immigrate from Korea to Japan, and they experience discrimination and exclusion and being shunned for being someone who's different. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me a lot about you know my life. I mean, I'm, I'm Korean American, uh, but and I'm born here and I'm, I consider myself American, but I'm not always seen as American first. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then when I go to Korea, I am not a Korean. Like they definitely like, oh, you're not from here. And so that 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 story really asked the question about like, what is identity? And like, what does it mean to belong and the p- impact of exclusion and mm-hmm. treating others um, differently and that othering of people. So it was just a really powerful story and like actually had a lot of resonance for me. And so I encourage folks to pick that one up too. Those are great recommendations. And that's a great transition, actually, I think, into the first question I've got for you. As we think about the topic today, we're going to go back a little bit further than we usually do. Often I start these episodes by asking folks, what got you interested in the law or law school? And and I want to go back further than that. I, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood and growing up in San Francisco. You grew up in a pretty diverse environment. Tell us a little bit about the cultural context uh, that you grew up in. Yeah. So I was, as I said, I was born and raised in San Francisco. And, um, you know, my parents had originally come to um, the United States to further their education. So they got their graduate degrees here. But, you know, eventually my extended their extended family immigrated to the to the US and lived with us for a while and so i was very much steeped in some of the traditions from korea like we always had regular family dinners and celebrated korean holidays and you know we had to bow to our elders on new years and we eat the special foods on chuseok which is korean thanksgiving mm-hmm. all those things right it's like we very much celebrated all the traditional holidays and also there was an expectation that you know you keep quiet, you respect your elders and people in positions of authority. You know, it's sort of like the Korean culture, like there's a lot of things that um, stem back from the Confucian ideals. And it's a lot about like respecting your authority and respecting your elders. And so that was definitely part of my upbringing. And also this focus on academic achievement, right? Like study hard, Mm -hmm. being top of the class, and like all these like academic achievement was really important. And so while I can't say that I experienced blatant discrimination and I was surrounded by diversity. But if I think about it, I mean, I do recall isolated random incidents where, you know, someone might drive by and say, go back to where you came from, or would ask, you know, like I get in a cab and they're like, oh, where are you from? And I'd say, oh, San Francisco. And they'd say, no, where are you really from? Um, right. And it's like, you know, do do my Caucasian peers ever get that question? I doubt it. Like, yeah, my ancestors are from Ireland or whatever, right? Um, so well, that's where I'm from and I don't get it. <laughs> right, right. Um, right. Yeah. And so it's like, these are these little things that you experience, right? And again, it's like, I never felt blatantly discriminated against, but I have had my share of those kinds of instances where you're like, uh, uh, are we the only ones getting these questions? And why Mm -hmm. is that? Right. And like, also maybe I was a little embarrassed to have like Korean food in my lunchbox when I was younger, people might look at it and like, Oh, that smells funny or it looks foreign. Um, Mm -hmm. so while I definitely didn't feel like an outcast per se, you know, I did have my fair share of incidents where I felt like the other. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, other than that, like totally normal childhood, I, you know, active in student government. And I wrote for my school newspaper. I was, you know, kind of a governance nerd, although I was also a cheerleader, you know, got a cool internship with the board of supervisors in San Francisco. So like very active, but definitely had um, a lot of Korean cultural influences. 
on me. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're accomplished by any measure, right? So like, you know, you went to UCLA, you have a JD, you had a great career at established companies. I want to kind of build on that tension though, and people might categorize it. And I know it's a frustrating phrase, but categorize it as like a model minority sort of challenge, right? In which you're simultaneously a little bit of an outsider, but you're also a little bit of an insider, right? How do you handle that uh, to the extent that you can explain as you're building this career in law? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like from the outside, you might look at my career and say, oh, she's, you know, achieved some successes in her career, uh, but it didn't come without overcoming personal challenges, which I think is sort of the invisible to, to yeah. folks. But my upbringing, right, being conditioned to respect my elders and authority figures actually really made it challenging for me to speak up earlier in my career. I remember like it was such a challenge to assert myself or, mm -hmm. or to, to speak up on a position I had and to just really like take up space. It just didn't feel natural to me. And also, you know, I saw leaders who never looked like me, right? And, mm -hmm. and never really had a common frame of reference like um, with me. Um, I'm the first lawyer in my family. Uh, but I observed so many others had the benefit of coming from a long line of lawyers, uh, had, you know, vast connections with insiders mm -hmm. that their families were you know, in their neighborhood or in their networks. And like, you know, they just got insights and savvy from having those relationships, right, that I just never benefited from. And, you know, I realized that academic achievement and doing good work and keeping your head down was really only going to get you so far. And now having been in leadership roles and often being the first or the only in the room, it's reminded me of the importance of representation, right? And when people see you in those roles, it starts to become normalized. And I've had so many instances where, you know, young women who look like me will come to me and just really talk about how um, great it feels to be seen and heard and to mm -hmm. be represented in a way that they don't normally see. And so that's been really wonderful. That's fantastic. Let's talk about a few sort of situations that you've dealt with over the course of, of your career. You mentioned in an earlier conversation that we had, I don't think we were even talking about doing a podcast episode at that point in time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you were the chief compliance officer at CSAA, you found yourself in a compliance committee meeting with the board, um, and the course that, that you ended up advising they take ran counter to what your boss, who was the general counsel, was advising. Tell us about that situation. Yeah. Um, so this was actually a compliance committee. There was senior leadership in the room. Yeah. And I think it was like early on when I'd just been promoted into like the director of compliance. And, uh -huh. um, you know... I just recall, I won't share too much of the content of what was being discussed, but I just recall disagreeing so strongly with what my <laughs> boss was saying. And I was very much like, I was taking a hard position on the importance of compliance. And mm -hmm. he was taking kind of more of a business-friendly position, I guess I would mm -hmm. frame it as. And I remember having this internal dialogue with myself at the time. And I was like, um, do I just let this go? Here's my boss. I'm in front of some senior leaders here. Maybe mm -hmm. I just defer, right? Or do I take a stand and I just, you know, like this is my job and I should be able to take a strong position and to disagree and to like kind of show my colleagues like what I'm made of and what I believe in. So I decided, ah, I'm going to vocalize my opposition. And so I, I did, I spoke up. I was like, we kind of got into some heated discussion and disagreement in front of all of my senior peers. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I learned a lot from that, right? And like one was 
that when I have conviction about doing the right thing, nothing is really going to stand in my way. It was sort of like at, when push comes to shove, like that's the choice I'm going to make. But the second was like, I think I will never love my job and job security so much that I will like sacrifice mm -hmm. my integrity. I mean, it's just something mm -hmm. deep seated in me. I mean, that could have been career limiting. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Right? Like, like publicly disagreeing and kind of getting into it with my boss in front of everyone. I, That's a I, it, good intuition to have, by the way. I think we should all <laughs> we should all agree that we 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 should all aspire to put our integrity before job security. <laughs> really? I mean, I don't know. That's just kind of how I'm built, and I can't escape it. And that's when I realized it, right? And like, but the other and like, you know, I was publicly disagreeing with my boss. I just felt like, oh gosh, is this awkward? But you know, it got us to a better place. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say. The last thing I learned was that leading a legal function is hard, you know, and he was yeah. a GC there, you know, you're needing to build credibility with your business partners and mm -hmm. you're trying to get them to understand that, you know, that you get, we're running a business, that we're not running a law firm, you know, that you're pragmatic, you're solutions oriented. And so, mm -hmm. um, I get that that was kind of what he was trying to do in the room. Mm -hmm. And, and so that said, right after the meeting, my boss actually apologized to me and he said, you know, sorry that, that it got that heated. And that's when I learned that's the kind of place I want to be in, right? I'm there with someone who values me, who is okay with me taking a stand, who's open to learning and being challenged. And it's yeah. basically a safe space to speak up that I just learned so much from that. But that was also kind of a turning point for me where I just thought, okay, I need to be speaking up more. I need to really like take up more space. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think this is a place where questions of diversity really do matter and the cultural context that you, you know, talked about earlier matters. Tell us about how you in that moment also sort of overcame the voices inside your head telling you to be quiet, um, how, how you found your voice there or even, you know, later on. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying, it really was a breakthrough moment for me. You know, you look back yeah. at your career. I think it's a good exercise to think about what were those like breakthrough moments throughout your career yeah. where there was a turning point. And that was definitely one of them. Um, and I just learned the value of speaking up, which should be obvious, right? For all of us in the law, obviously, like we should be right. But, but, but knowing there's some people they're overcoming a lot more to get to that place of being com comfortable speaking up. I certainly, and I'm not saying that all people who, you know, are, you know, Asian or whatever have problems speaking up, but the sure. way I was raised, it was definitely a challenge for me. That was an important perspective to share with others and to really lean into that. Like I said before, I learned, right, that it was ultimately a safe space to speak up and I didn't face retaliation, but instead was actually applauded for it and encouraged mm -hmm. to continue that. Um, so that was really pretty amazing. And, you know, I don't think he'll ever know. Well, maybe now he will, but I don't think he'll ever know how much <laughs> courage it took for me to speak up in that moment. Um, but it's a day I'll never forget. You know, the other things I realized, right, and we should all know this, I mean, that, that was many years ago, but I should have probably taken the time to, you know, brief these issues with him in advance you know, there's a sure. lot of value in like the meetings that happen before the meeting um, mm -hmm. and really like socializing your position and kind of having that game plan 
Um, so there's no surprises in the room. And that was another valuable lesson, right? It's like, okay, like this one, I should have, as busy as we all were, should have taken the time to have the meeting before the meeting, right? And just sort of go in there mm -hmm. uh, with a game plan. So um, just a lot of learning, but but really a, a breakthrough moment for, for me. One last question, I guess, on your, uh, your time at CSAA. And when I was introducing you earlier, I think I called you the chief compliance officer. It's important to this question. Juno was both the chief ethics and chief compliance officer uh, while she was there. I'm curious what those terms mean to you, ethics and, and compliance, and both sort of may, maybe how they differ a little bit in the abstract, um, but also in the day-to-day -day of how a business is run and, and the decisions that you're making as a company. Sure. So um, CSAA, I mean, we were an insurance company. We actually were a combined auto club and insurance company, but we split mm -hmm. in 2011. And so I, um, we were then with the insurance company and we offered you know insurance products primarily to AAA member households. And yes, I was a chief ethics and compliance officer. And so like there's two components, right? The compliance piece is really like you're in a highly regulated industry and insurance mm -hmm. is highly regulated. We're actually regulated at the state level. So there's state departments of insurance um, that regulate our practices and um, our um, uh, how we show up in the market. And so we needed a central function that would monitor compliance across the company, that would assess risk on a regular basis, ensure that compliance issues were fixed and prioritized and really thought of as like part of doing business, not like on the side. So it was really about building and maintaining a strong control environment with lots of checks and balances, holding people accountable. So that was sort of like the regulatory compliance side. I'd say the ethics piece, that to me, I think is about building culture, building ethical culture. What does that mean? It's like creating a speak up culture. Like you're trying to understand, is there like potential misconduct um, mm -hmm. You're getting people to feel comfortable speaking up, reporting misconduct, getting people to value doing the right thing, avoiding conflicts of interest, um, and operating our business with integrity. So it's a lot of training, awareness, creating mm -hmm. a culture where people feel comfortable speaking up, where everyone's included. And that is why like, I have a passion, you know, obviously for building ethical culture, but also for diversity and inclusion. And both like resonate and they both require you to create an environment where people are comfortable speaking up, where they feel included. And so I remember, you know, we would have listening sessions, I would go out to various locations across the company and I would ask them like, what's going on here in this location? Do you mm -hmm. feel comfortable speaking up? How do you feel about, you know, your management? Do you feel like you have a level of trust? And like every location was a little different. And so you learn things and you also accomplish them seeing and meeting the compliance function in person and realizing that they care so much to come and talk. Um, mm -hmm. But it was really about finding ways to build strong culture. Um, and so like, you know, without having a commitment to a culture of integrity, which really kind of comes from the top, right? You need a, you need mm -hmm. a tone at the top, right? Your leadership really is invested in doing the right thing and values transparency and values its reputation for doing the right thing. If you don't have that, then the rest falls apart, you, you know? And so like ethics is such an important component of having a compliance oriented organization. And so mm -hmm. I feel like those two are really complementary and necessary for each other. And we'll talk more about how to go about that in just a minute, but we've got to 
lead the audience there and, and sort of how you got to the position as general counsel at Metromile. You were at CSAA for 15 years, which is a you know good amount of time. And then you decided to go take, and this is a pun on purpose, take the driver's seat uh, of the <laughs> good legal one. team. I see what you did there. Uh, as GC at Metromile, which is was a you know a relatively large startup, but still a startup, probably very different culturally. Let's talk about that transition, right? Was it scary? How did you know it was the right thing to do? What did those conversations look like with your family about making a big transition? Tell us about the the decision to to move to Metromile. Yeah, no. So I um, wasn't really actively looking when uh, Metromile's uh, recruiter contacted me about the opportunity. And I remember initially I was like, oh, oh, general counsel? Oh, I don't, I don't think so, right? <laughs> and thinking that I need that many more years of experience or, you know, I don't know. I just, for some reason, never thought about that's, that place for me. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because the more I thought about it, I thought, why not me, right? It's like, yeah. at that point, I'd been practicing law for 22 years, and it was like, mm-hmm. Juna, if not now, when? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I was like- You asked my, yourself the right question. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's like, I was almost my worst enemy in like holding myself back, thinking I need to be that much better. I need to have that much more experience. You know, really the time was ripe for that next challenge for me. Obviously, I'd been at AAA for a long time. And really, it became like family. I had such opportunities to grow my career there. So I was so grateful. But really, I was itching for that next, you know, major challenge in my life. And um, I had heard of Metro Mile. I thought it was an exciting opportunity. That company stood for change, right? And like in the insurance industry, I mean, this is like a long-standing, pretty conservative industry. And the thought of them trying to innovate and to make insurance fairer and more transparent mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, um, move away from the traditional risk factors like age and zip code and credit score and moving to to like making insurance more fair. I mean, we weren't going to change the world overnight, but like, you know, by taking steps in the different direction and maybe indexing more on how many miles you're driving and your driving behaviors. I just thought that was really, really interesting and necessary. So that mission really drew me in. The CEO, Dan Preston, was just an incredible still is an incredible human being that I felt Mm -hmm. an instant connection with. And so, you know, I just felt like, oh, this is something I need to do. And I even remember when I gave notice to my boss at AAA, he was like, you know, Juna, I really should be fighting for you to stay, but this is such a great opportunity (laughs) for you. You have to go. You know, and he was like so supportive. He's like, I'm so sad to see you go, but you have to do this. Um, And I'm so excited for you. So that was really wonderful. But yeah, this transition from going from a a large established company, you know, like $5 billion, like household name to a smaller Mm -hmm. insure tech. And it very much still felt like a startup, you know, went from 3,500 employee company to 300 or something like that. That was a change. Mm -hmm. We'd actually gone public two weeks before I had joined, Uh, but there was just a lot to be done, right? There was just more governance to put in place, our public company reporting obligations, all that stuff. Uh, But it was my chance to start something new, to lead the legal function, to have a seat at the table on the leadership team. And that was something I just couldn't pass up. I realized, well, I'm a strong corporate generalist. I've had exposure to a lot of different areas. 
um, of in-house legal practice. And that's actually the skill set you need. And I remember a long time ago in my career, I, I had, again, like I was kind of more of a corporate generalist. I took on whatever different areas there was work. And I remember being frustrated about that. And my boss at the time said, Juna, being a strong corporate generalist is actually a skill too. So don't underestimate that. Not everyone can do that. And I just, that sure. stayed with me. I was like, oh, you're, you're right. And so like, you know, this role navigating gray areas with limited information, limited mm-hmm. time, navigating risk, being pragmatic and, you know, demonstrating grace under pressure. I mean, these are the things I think I do very well. I love leading teams. I love building. I love leading change. I love yeah. tackling issues, right? I mean, and I'm a nerd about process and governance. <laughs> I mean, it was all it was all in there. It was really, um, it was really, really amazing to be able to step into that role. And but it took a lot of sacrifice. I mean, when you go with a smaller company, moving fast, you need to roll up your sleeves and like do what it takes to help steer steer that ship. You know, I mean, it's like mm-hmm. you're not going to have as many resources. You don't have necessarily the longest runway per se, right? But you have like good people who in many ways are dreamers and idealists, right? I mean, in order to really innovate, you got to be a dreamer, right? It starts with Mm -hmm. a good idea. And maybe that doesn't always appeal to everybody, right? And so like working at a kind of a startup environment isn't for everyone. But if you like really like to dream, and to make those dreams a reality, like I think that is what makes, you know, like the Bay Area tech environment so special. It's because mm-hmm. you got a lot of big dreamers. And I just love that, right? And like change doesn't happen unless you like start out with a really a great dream and a great idea to innovate something that's um, established. So for me, it was just an exciting opportunity to do something completely different. I'm going to ask uh, about one of those situations where required a bit of grace under pressure and, and was tough. But before I do that, I just want to make a comment, which is to say, I loved listening to you talk about the things that you're good at and you're passionate about. And I think that people in the workplace do that too little, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's because they, you know, they, they don't want to be seen as arrogant or right. Uh, commenting on all the things that they're great at, right. And, face of a lot of other talented people around them or real challenges the business is facing. So I don't know, anyway, just a, a thought for, for folks who are listening to contemplate, which is maybe ask people on your teams or in your business or who are your friends, what they're great at and what they're really passionate about. Because hearing you say that, you know, makes me want to work with you. <laughs> oh, maybe there'll be a day that comes. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. No, uh, I love that. That's a really great observation. I'm going to bring up a little bit of a difficult time uh, to set the scene for sort of the next point of conversation. I think many of us remember, I believe it was March of 2021, there's a murderer who went on a shooting spree targeting Asian businesses in Atlanta, then a bunch of violence against Asian Americans in major cities like San Francisco, particularly like grandparents in their 80s going to grocery stores. Um, this was during COVID. There's a movement that really forms called Stop. Asian hate. So, I mean, that's sort of setting the scene. And, and 
And you told me about a particularly amazing moment. Your CEO made an unscripted remark during a town hall at a Metro Mile. Tell us just about that and and uh, and what happened. Yeah, you know, I had just joined the company. It was a couple months in, and unfortunately, um, that uh, violent murder happened in Atlanta, and so we were all reeling from it. And I was asked to lead a listening session um, because. You know, at that time, there was this alarming rise in hate crime against Asians. It was something like 300% rise in hate crime against Asians um, in that past year. And it was just something we couldn't avoid. We had to talk about. And we were struggling with what was the right way to address this. And it just became, you know what, just let's listen to people's stories and experiences. And um, I remember sharing my own um, experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember having conversations with a good friend of mine. And he was like, yeah, like every weekend we just go out. I know it's COVID, but like you can go enjoy nature. So like every weekend we'll go find some cool place to hike in the Bay Area. There's so many different, really wonderful places, but we always bring our pepper spray. And I remember going, what, what, what was that about? And he was like, well, you never know. I mean, these days there's so much violence and you gotta like, you know, carry, carry self-defense. And I was just like, what world are we living in that we're having a conversation yeah. about like getting out, enjoying nature and your family, but you got to bring your pepper spray. I just, uh, that, um, that just really stayed with me. And I needed to share that because people didn't know, right. That that's, those are the kinds of measures that um, our friends in the Asian community are taking. Right. And like, they'd be like telling their parents, don't go to the grocery store. I'll go and get what you need and drop it off, right? Or like asking their friends, hey, can you pick this up and drop it off? Like, I don't want them out and about on the street, like just to take a walk in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and so like th there was a really sensitive time and a really painful and traumatic time being in the Asian community. And so, you know, we had that session. I remember showing a clip of like a, a news story that like, basically shared a lot of statistics about what was going on. It was really eye-opening. A few of us shared our stories. We had some questions and answers. And um, and it was really a time where I kind of was a little more vulnerable. Um, and I just thought it was important for people to know that even I was experiencing some of this and that mm -hmm. um, to draw people in to understand how real it was getting. I remember at the end of that session, my boss, Dan, basically was like, Juna, thank you so much for leading this session. It strikes me that the very people who were asking to lead these kinds of sessions are also the very people who've been traumatized and impacted by what's been going on. I hope we can do better. And it's really something for us to be thinking about. But thank you so much for leading it. Again, unscripted. I was so moved that he said that. That's the kind of leader you want to work with, right? Someone who really... Mm -hmm like gets it. I just felt so seen and heard and valued in a way that I had never anticipated or expected. That was one of those moments I'm going to keep with me forever. That was really special. What does that mean for a company's employees and the, the, the culture of an organization? I'll just put the question. So like, what does that mean for the culture of a place? Yeah. I mean, it's important, first of all, to have a leader who really sets that tone at the top right, who really takes this whole concept of inclusion and belonging seriously. Mm -hmm. And to hear them talk about it, it's one thing to feel it, but to talk about it and to demonstrate that commitment is another. 
And in that moment, that's what he showed us what he was made of. Just, just to have that kind of clarity and to like have it come from your heart. That just told me a lot about who he was as a person. And mm -hmm. um, I just felt so supported in that way. And I felt like with people like him and me sharing our thoughts on something very sensitive and traumatic, um, hopefully helped other people feel like we could see them too. You're fostering a culture where everyone is truly seen for who they are and valued. I think that was the big takeaway there. And also, again, like I said, like there aren't a ton of people who look like me in, in those kinds of roles. And so for all of those folks who, you know, people of color, um, hopefully got a lot from hearing a leader who looks like them, who has a, a shared frame of reference, mm -hmm. feel seen in a way that hadn't been seen before. I want to ask you about how, as GC, you advise on probably not immediately analogous or similar situations, but other tough questions like this. Standing up and having a listening session, given where Metro Miles based, who the employees are, this is a no-brainer, right? I expect you also encounter other questions that are very much in the public sphere. And some folks might view them as compliance questions. Some folks might view them as ethics questions to be solved. I think other people may actually view them as political questions in which the business is taking a political stand. And it's in those situations, as we've seen with the variety of companies, even this year, right, taking you know, positions, whether it's through their advertising or mm -hmm. statements by CEOs. And the answer in those cases, I guess what I'm getting at is the answer in those cases about whether or not to engage is not always so clear, whether it's a sort of internal engagement with your employees or an external engagement with the press. I think they're tough. You, I think, have a little bit of a framework for thinking these through or, or a way that you've approached advising on them in the past. Let's talk about that. How, how do you advise your executive team on thorny questions like this? Yeah, no, it's a really good one. And there's no right answer at the end of the day, right? But I think there's a series of questions you have to ask. It's about deciding who you are as a company and what you stand for, right? I mean, you know, there's a myriad of issues, but, you know, does that issue closely align with your product, um, your mm -hmm. customers or your prospective customers? Um, how will it affect your reputation to take a stand or not take a stand? And really just like examining what is at the core of who you are, not only as a business, uh, although that's super important. In mm -hmm. addition, as a member of your industry, as a member of the broader community, and as an employer, there's so many different mm -hmm. facets of who you are and how you're seen. Who are your key stakeholders, right? And what's important for them to know about what you stand for? And also, can you take a position that aligns with who you are that you can consistently fall back on, right? Because these things will come in the future. Is there a, a principle that you can t fall back on that you can consistently um, lean on? And, you know, what's the right thing to do for you may differ, right, from company to company, from industry to industry. But you have to know what you stand for, how you're going to show up in the world. I think those things are really important to be considering. How do you go about executing on that sort of decision-making tactically? Are there things that you can do to prepare uh, in advance before a situation arises where you might have to take a position as a business, whether it's with your employees or externally? Who do you think you really need to bring in? Who needs to be at the table when these conversations are happening? 
How do you go about this? Yeah, I mean, it's important to have, you know, like a lot of those questions I just asked, I think it's helpful to have that. I mean, especially, you know, a lot of these things may emanate from kind of a crisis situation. And so I, I think it's a really good idea to have like a crisis management plan. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort, sort of crisis management, but also just like a decision tree or sort of like a framework for what to do in these scenarios. Uh, obviously, your leadership team is going to be really important, particularly your CEO. Your communications leader is so important in these situations. Our communications person was our right-hand person um, to think about like the various audiences and what kind of messages you have to prepare. Um, mm-hmm. Your head of HR, you know, your business function leaders, if you have like a head of risk, I think it's important to have these conversations again, like, hey, everybody, here we are. Who are we? What mm-hmm. do we stand for? Does this position we are proposing to take align um, with our business? Does it support, enhance, solidify who we are? Um, and mm-hmm. again, like I said, can you consistently fall back on that, that principle Every time a new situation arises, and also you know your 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 board, there are investors potentially, right? It's sort of like thinking about how those audiences are going to react, and ensuring there's alignment across the board is going to be really important. And then ultimately, mm-hmm. what it boils down to is what's in the best interests of the company. I mean, it's a complicated question because there's so many different stakeholders to be considering, uh, but like. Having that framework of all those things you're going to like interrogate in advance, I think, is a really important one and a commitment to having that conversation when it arises. Before we close on on this topic, if you were going to give executives, leaders a piece of advice around this that you think is really key to navigating these sorts of situations, whether it's professionally as the business or personally in that moment, someone in the middle of it, what would you leave them with? Take a stand for what you believe in. Um, Have conviction in what's right and the right thing to do. Have the courage to do the right thing. For me professionally, that's always been, you know, my North Star. I think that's what I would advise others is to like take that stand. As we start to wrap up our conversation, I've got just a couple more questions prepped for you. This one is, I think this is a really interesting one. I'm, I'm curious about this. What's a failure that, that you've experienced over the course of your career that you think a lot of folks uh, may be headed for, they may not see on their horizon? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned it a little earlier, but I'll say it again. It's that you know, like lawyers. So we're type A, we're like <laughs> achievement oriented. We got to be the best, right? Which is great. Uh, but I would say it's that it's that need to chase that next title, the next promotion, the next accolade without actually doing reflection on what's important and what's meaningful work for you. I definitely did that. Like I have to say, I've, I've been running for a large part of my career. And, you know, you realize that Chasing those titles will be exhausting and unfulfilling if you don't Mm -hmm. include time for the things that you really like to do. You know, it might be your work. Fantastic. You're already in the right place. But it may be other things. It's a very good likelihood. It may be other things, right? Like what feeds your soul? Sorry, that sounds so woo-woo, but it's like so (laughs) true because you can't escape it. What feeds your soul? Go do that. And include more of that in your life. If you don't, you will burn out and feel depleted. You know, stop running and take 
a moment to have more gratitude in your life. I saw this quote many years ago. It was like at this coffee shop and mm-hmm. I, it, it stayed with me. It said something like, enjoy the little things in life because one day you'll look back and realize they were the big things. I don't want to like continue to live life and like have regrets later, right? That I didn't stop and appreciate um, the, th- the little things. And so that's, that's something that I will share with you about something I think we need to be doing. Kind of a yeah. failure, but an observation. Yeah. A final question for you. Uh, and looking back on, you know, when you were a young lawyer, any advice that you'd have for young lawyers who are, who are just getting started today? Yeah, I have a few things. So Good. I guess, we'll, yeah. We'll take notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One is, I would say to be open to different paths to success. Like, <laughs> guess what? We're not all in the top 10% of our law school class. Um, like 90% of us weren't. Um, and also like <laughs> your career is not a linear path, right? And I think that's what makes you so much more interesting. And I have found mm-hmm. the most interesting lawyers that I've met with have taken alternative paths, have had like different jobs or just did different things. Um, and they just have a broader perspective on the world. You know, if you have inner whispers, to try something different, listen to it. Cause I guarantee you they're not going to go away. Um, so that's, that's, there's an openness that I would encourage. And the second, this concept that the law is not always right. <laughs> I mean, I know we all blindly go, well, this is what the, this is our position. This is what the law says. It's not always right. And it's in those times that we need to think about how do we advocate for change. And I shared this back when I was at AAA, we had a a DEI summit and there's a personal story. So I remember we were buying our first house in San Francisco is this neighborhood called Lakeside, Um, like super like stately, like the white picket fences. I'd always thought, gosh, I want to live in that neighborhood. And here we are, we're like getting, signing our paperwork um, at the title company. And I remember there was like the CCNRs, it was like, um, you know, rules and regulations that like the neighborhood association had you sign up for. And I remember flipping through and there was a section and it just like shocked me, but it said, no one but those of the Caucasian race can Mm -hmm. live, occupy, or own any of the homes in this neighborhood. And redlining. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was just shocked. And the person was, oh, don't worry, that whole thing that's been invalidated, like, you know, but it's, it was still there in writing and I saw it. Um, And I've been like, yeah, I know it's not, but wow, how shocking to actually see it. Like that Mm -hmm. was totally okay. Back in the thirties and beyond the house was built in the late thirties. I share this, right? Because obviously laws have changed since then. Right. Sure. But how did they change? It was because people realized it was the wrong thing to do. And Mm -hmm. it's just like a lesson that, Sometimes the law is not right. It's like, you know, it's framed for a different time. I think we in the legal profession should think about that. When there's change needed, let's be a part of that. Let's not live in a time where laws don't fit the current situation. So I want to share that because I think there yeah. is an opportunity for this for this next generation to really be thoughtful about that, right? And always find ways to give back. You know, we are so blessed to have a legal education and, you know, of course you have to pay back your student loans and you have to have the fancy <laughs> titles and all that, the cool assignments with the cool partners or whatever. <laughs> but we have a responsibility to give back um, and to offer our time, our energy to those who've been marginalized or don't 
have ready access to legal services, I think it just helps to ground you and it helps us to build a, you know stronger communities and it's just the right thing to do. So that's my other word of advice. That is a fantastic way to close out our conversation. Juna, thank you so much for joining today. Tyler, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. And thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this one and hope to see you next time on the next episode of The Abstract. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or our guest, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See you all next week.